Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name's Jara, and thanks for tuning in. Today with us, we have Grace. Hey, everybody. And Sue. Hi-de-ho, neighborinos. Oakley, Dunkley. And we are going to, for this first episode in, I guess, second episode in 2018, but first one that we're recording in 2018. Yes. The first conceived in 2018, yes. Yes. And we are going to be talking about Star Trek and the environment and environmentalism. Uh, but before we get into that, we just have a little bit of housekeeping to do. First, we want to remind you about the Women at Work Patreon. Uh, so um, some of you may have seen there were some changes going on at Patreon. Uh, we had written a letter to Patreon opposing those changes. It was just in how like the fee breakdown between patrons and, and creators was structured. And we had opposed those changes. Patreon has decided to reverse those changes. So we will be sticking with them for now and uh, appreciate your continued support. You can uh, support us. Uh, we are entirely listener supported by going to patreon.com slash women at warp and pledging as little as a dollar a month to get access to exclusive bonus content. Uh, we do watch alongs. Uh, sometimes we make, uh, we share bloopers. I think we were going to maybe look up some old photos of us at conventions to share with patrons. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're always coming up with different things to share. So, uh, patreon.com slash women at warp. Thank you so much for helping us keep the show up and running. And remember, for less than the cup of coffee a month, you can enable all our weird shenanigans. Yes. Indeed. And another way that you can help support our podcast is by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This just helps other people find our show more easily. And we always appreciate getting the feedback. So thanks uh, in advance for when for leaving us a review. And also, uh, you can leave a rating and review on Facebook as well, which is another way to help spread the word because the more ratings and reviews there, the more likely we are to show up in other people's feeds or in searches when people search for things like Star Trek or feminism. Or warp. Or, or warp. Because you definitely search about warp technology on Facebook. Well, you never know. <laughs> never know. Awesome. So, uh, Sue, do you want to start us off with a bit of a basic definition of environmentalism and our theme for today? Yeah, so the basic definition of environmentalism in its most basic form, really, is concern about and action aimed at protecting the environment. And that can take a lot of forms. I mean, there is, we're going to talk about things that are as very obvious as the voyage home, where with its, or, you know, can be called Star Trek for Save the Whales. The one with the whales, yes. Yeah. But I mean, that, that, message hits you over the head. But we will also be talking about, you know, Mark of Gideon, which is dealing with overpopulation and birth control, force of nature, which is a global warming allegory, things like, believe it or not, tribbles being an invasive species and, and hurting a planet's ecology. Uh, so there are uh, lots of different angles you can come at this from. And I think often Star Trek deals with it sort of as the B plot or like, the the story that moves along the other story we're paying more attention to. But there's a lot of stuff there if you really dig deeper into it. So we're not going to be able to cover everything that ever comes up when we're dealing with environmentalism and track, but we have picked a few uh, from each series, I think, that we'll hopefully be able to get to today. Yeah, I would say that Star Trek overall seems to... There aren't a, a, a ton of episodes where that's really the focus, but... Where it appears, it often reinforces the way that environmental devastation is connected to devastation of humans and other, other, you know, sentient life forms or other living things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that is, I think, an important concept coming from the, uh, analysis of ecofeminism. You know, some of the early, most uh, early ecofeminist thinkers really started to raise the connection between how domination and destruction of the environment is connected to oppression of women and other marginalized groups like indigenous people and and people of color. Um, so I think that that is an important thing we're going to see coming up throughout the discussion. Not to mention just being not horrible about the environment is kind of a tenant of that 
secular humanist philosophy of Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, I was reading a bit in uh, some of the background, there was some debate among fans over whether or not Gene Roddenberry was a vegetarian. (laughs) Um, But I did find um, a part where um, an interview where Gene Roddenberry was saying, I don't, the unfortunate thing was there was no date on this. So I don't know when this was, but he was saying at the time, like, I am not yet a vegetarian, but I do feel very uncomfortable when I eat meat knowing the process that went into that. Mm. So just food for thought. Har har. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that that's a legitimate concern though, right? Because free range and ethical practices in like livestock is becoming much more important to a lot of people. Yes. Yeah, it is a whole area you can get into um, debating various levels of sustainability and ethics in your food. And where it's coming That's from. the word I couldn't think of. Sustainability. Sustainability. <laughs> yeah. The ability to sustain, if you will. <laughs> How do you want to approach this? Should we start with the original series and go on forward through yeah. the canon? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So we have like a big list that um, our amazing listeners threw out many, many suggestions. We may not touch on all of them, as Sue said. But if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind starting with The Mark of Gideon being one of the ones that I recently rewatched for this episode. Absolutely. Go for it. This is the one where the green floating heads symbolize overpopulation. (laughs) Yeah. uh Do they not in your community? Yeah. So like they go to this planet, the people kidnap Kirk so that they can take a factor from his blood to infect the like young adults with this deadly illness that Kirk was cured from, but it's like latent in his bloodstream. Mm-hmm. And their goal is to shorten their species lifespan to deal with their ridiculous overpopulation problem. Like literally their overpopulation is like the worst possible bus ride you can imagine. And except all the time. And I guess you sleep standing up and there's somehow still room to build a fake model enterprise. There are so many world building questions that I have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of people had to sleep on the floor for that. But like, if the, how does the birth rate keep rising if there's literally like not enough room on the planet to get pregnant? <laughs> like, Not enough room to make any babies, if you know what we mean. Right. <laughs> People do it in airplane bathrooms, so... They'll just have a lot of observers. Yeah. (laughs) It's just part of the culture, you know? We don't mean to kink shit. They value, quote-unquote, life more than privacy. Ah, okay. (laughs) Did anyone else uh, have any thoughts on this episode? No, we just kind of creeped ourselves out, though, I think. (laughs) Well, I I think it's really funny. I think the this episode gets forgotten by a lot of people. And just earlier today, I retweeted... Um, actually, a tweet from Planned Parenthood in D.C. that had the screen cap of Kirk saying, like, well, why don't you let your people learn about the technologies that can safely prevent conception? And, you know, yeah. they tweeted something about, like, well, thank goodness for Planned Parenthood. You can come learn more. And somebody replied to that tweet and said, wait a minute, this isn't from Track. Like, no, this is real. Yeah, (laughs) this is accurate captioning from an episode in 1968. And Captain Kirk was talking about birth control. Yeah, and that's definitely, I think, the highlight of the episode. Um, Also, the most edgy part of the episode. And the Gideon guy basically says, oh, like, we can't do that. We value life too much. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kirk's Ah. like, you value life so much, you're going to infect your people with a deadly disease. And you're going to, like, kill your own daughter. And it's like, oh, she volunteered. It's okay. But... Yeah. I mean, that's, um, it's a powerful moment for TOS. And so many parallels that they'd rather let people die of a disease than let people prevent conception. Yeah. Hmm. Where have we heard that one before? Yeah. And that really, to me, connects with uh, eco-feminist thought around uh, the domination of women related to the domination of the environment. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, Kirk isn't saying that, but unless, and I, we're not led to believe the Gideons reproduce dramatically differently from humans, they look exactly like humans, uh-huh. only with worse clothes. <laughs> You know, so what you're talking about is basically forcing women to carry pregnancies to term, unless it's always consensual on Gideon, which is a possibility. But, you know, pregnancy does have a disproportionate impact on a female body. And 
that, uh, so the, then in their case, their environmental problems and their uh, oppression of women is t- completely connected. Absolutely. I mean, the ending, unfortunately, doesn't really pan out in terms of a greater message, because basically they decide, well, it's okay if we let them go through with this plan, as long as we save the one beautiful woman that Kirk's kissed. And then she can just go cheerfully infect the rest of the planet. If you prioritize Kirk's girlfriend of the week, everyone can go home happy. Yeah, so they just let them go through with their plan. It's totally great, but, you know, whatever. Questionable. Season three, what can you do? Other TOS episodes... That folks wanted to talk about. Well, the Cloudminders comes to Cloudmind. <laughs> yes. Cloudminders, wherein we've got uh, two different societies on the same planet. One living underground, doing the mining, and uh, basically all of the manual labor for this other species. Uh, uh, sorry, culture living in the clouds in a beautiful sort of paradise where they can devote everything to art and education. And they just don't want to share because, you know, those people down in the mines, they wouldn't even know what to do with this education if we gave it to them, you know? There's a lot to be said there in that, at least. Yeah. It's, um, this is actually, I think, an episode that holds up pretty well, um, even from a modern perspective when you're looking at class analysis. And yeah, actually, um, I think highlights some of the problems with some of the discourse around the resource industry and developing cleaner technologies because, you know, generally speaking, you know, there's a whole discussion around, okay, so the people who work in these industries, not necessarily doing so because it's like, a super fun gig. Like a lot of them, it's like their families worked in that that job, they've been trained in that job. So how do you take those people with you when you're transitioning to clean industries? So I think that that um, this episode speaks to that um, in addition to, again, just like that connection between environmental destruction and in this case, class oppression. Mm-hmm. And how the two really go hand in hand. I mean, a pretty prime example of that is um, what we've seen in communities where there have been, you know, fracking experimentation going on and how that really will have a massive repercussion on the communities around it, on people's health. But the, uh, there are people who are in charge who just think, well, it's worth it if we're getting energy from that and we don't have to deal with the consequences, then these, if it's happening to these people, it doesn't matter. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes like, people think like to think of themselves as more enlightened, but they're actually just farther away. <laughs> oh, yeah. You hear that all the time with people argumenting about money and funding going into inner city schools, just like, well, why would we put all of that money into these people far away when it could be going to us who we know are going to use it well? Mm-hmm. Because it's us. Yeah. I kept thinking back when they have the bits where they're like talking like, well, what if you brought these people up to your literal, you know, ivory tower here and educated them and showed them how to be more logical and enlightened? And they go through the thing of, well, it's not like they would know what to do. I mean, they wouldn't appreciate it the way we would. And I kept thinking back to that thing a few years ago where someone called out Nicholas Sparks and his wife for their private school not having very many non-white students in it. And their response was just, well, you see, they just have a different mindset and wouldn't take to our level of education, you know? It was just like, dear God, man, listen to yourself. Mm. Sue, did you have a TOS or TAS? I have both. Yeah, I want to talk about the Tribble episodes. All right. And they're... Tribble it up. Definitely on the surface, they're treated as joke episodes. They're supposed to be comedic and lighthearted, but they actually, and, and the TAS episode specifically, more, more tribbles, more troubles, is really dealing with an invasive species. Um, I think it's Koloth in that episode, right? Actually calls it ecological warfare. Or sabotage, ecological sabotage, because these new breed of tribbles that they've engineered just keep eating, but they don't reproduce, but they still keep eating, and he hasn't slowed their metabolism at all. But overall, the tribbles from wherever Cyrano Jones took them from have no natural predator anywhere else in the galaxy. So it's the same as introducing a species to any ecosystem where it has no natural predator and they just keep reproducing and they 
completely change the environment. And it is interesting that these episodes about ecological sabotage, because a lot of the time when an invasive species does show up and start affecting a native area, it really does just kind of start as a minor inconvenience and the kind of thing you laugh off. About 10 years ago, back in Washington, we had a problem with uh, a type of caterpillar silkworm that was just popping up everywhere, and people were just like, ah, they're everywhere, you're just stepping on them everywhere. And then there started to be actual fallout from people trying to have their own home remedies and ways to exterminate them. A lot of people got hurt. It did it wasn't a great summer, not gonna lie. Was was not a fun summer hearing all those news stories about people accidentally lighting themselves on fire. Oh my. Yeah. Hmm. Washington is weird. <laughs> <laughs> well the Klingons go so far as to create slash engineer a predator, a glomer, to oh, go yes. after these tribbles. <laughs> and apparently it doesn't work that well in the end. But, I mean, that that is also a thing that happens where they go and bring in predators and then they have to bring in predators for that predator. And it becomes like the old lady who swallowed a fly situation where it just keeps getting worse and worse and goes out of control. See, the ideal yeah. situation here is if they took a cowboy bebop approach and made it so that the Tribble is like an off-world delicacy that has to be imported from their planet and people tell people just can't get enough of it. Then you really <laughs> turn your lemons into lemonade. <laughs> Tribble-aid, if you will. <laughs> and you thought finding one in your coffee was bad. So one of the things I wanted to talk about is, sorry, Spock and other Vulcans as vegetarians, which we see, again, come up in Enterprise, but it's first mentioned or implied in TOS. In Wolf in the Fold, there's a, this isn't 100% clear that this is what this means, but he does comment that even plants are life and says we all feed on death, even vegetarians. Um, so that isn't, you know, 100% clear that he's saying he's a vegetarian, but then in All Our Yesterdays, um, he's eating with a Zarabeth and basically asks if there's meat in this. And he, she's like, well, there's much else on this planet. And he says, he's behaving disgracefully because he ate meat and enjoyed it. Then later in the animated series episode, The Slaver Weapon, the Kazinti says to Spock, you're a Vulcan. I feel no pressing need to talk to an eater of roots and leaves. Humans, at least, are omnivorous. Mm -hmm. And uh, so later in Enterprise, we find out that T'Pol and most Vulcans are also vegetarian, and she specifically links it to their logic and greater enlightenment than humans, that they don't feel the need to consume meat. So I thought that that was interesting. And then we just, with that, get another example of how Archer and Trip are just needlessly dickish to her as sort of a, we're highlighting our cultural differences here, but if you said any of that to another person, they would think you were a massive dick. Vulcan aside, you don't get to just poop all over people's ideologies. Yeah. I kept it safe for work. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting because um, I think we do see in Star Trek that you know, when we think of the most times we see aliens eating meat, probably the Klingons come to mind. Uh-huh. And they would be sort of at the polar opposite or the other end of the spectrum from the Vulcans in terms of logic being very emotion-driven and being seen as, like, more uh, violent, for sure. There is sort of this connection there with that, like, eating meat is more of, like, a baser thing to do versus vegetarianism is connected to logic and enlightenment and freedom from emotions. Which is very fun to hear when you're anemic and, you know, can't not eat meat. It's it's not meant to be a personal attack. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure just that, saying. You know. It's a little bit of, oh, thanks a bunch. I feel like it is a, it is also a small message in the greater society that we live in where, like, you know, people often, like, get upset if you have a lunch option that doesn't include meat, not just for health reasons, that people are, like, expecting to eat meat at every meal in the West. So I, I still feel like it's, it's a, it's small to Paul's voice in the crew of the Enterprise that is North America. <laughs> True. All right, then. Well, shall we talk about the whale in the room? The, the whale. The whale in the room that we want to shoot into space. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's nothing that's even, like, subtext <laughs> in the voyage home. It's all text. It's like, hey, humanity, you might just think that they're weird-looking blobs full of perfume and lipstick, but <laughs> some aliens somewhere <laughs> might think they're valuable. 
<sighs> Once upon a time, these gentle giants of the deep were our only connection to space. And now we're screwing that up. Double dumbass on you, humans. <laughs> Overarchingly, though, it's not just save the whales. It's save the oceans. Because it's really <laughs> true. Like, if our oceans go to hell, then, like, yes. that's it. Time Absolutely. will make double dumbasses yeah. of us all. I mean, we're mocking it because it's, like, cheesy, but it's obviously an act a prescient message and especially at the time um i mean now since that time obviously whales are still at risk although whaling is significantly less than it was at you know the time that that movie was released there mm-hmm. are significantly more international agreements and restrictions on whaling especially when it comes to whales named after old-timey comedy duos that gets them protected like you wouldn't believe You'd have to have the Klingon ship saving the whales from climate change, and that's a lot harder to represent than, like, harpoon pinging off the hull. Well, our oceans are at risk from climate change, too, so... Yes. <laughs> that's so what I mean. Is if if Star Trek now. wants to get on that next issue, so we can just nip that in the bud right here, that'd be great. But just real quick, because I thought this was interesting when I found it, um, there's a website called environmentalgraffiti.com, based in the UK, which is apparently one of the top three environmental sites worldwide, and it nominated The Voyage Home as one of the greatest environmental movies of all time. <laughs> okay. Of course. Why not? Sure. I mean, unfortunately, there aren't that many. Do you want to bet, though, that Al Gore saw that list and was just like, oh, man, missed it by that much. <laughs> <laughs> one of. Just one of. <laughs> I was trying to make a difference, and I was upstaged by a whale and a man in a bathrobe. i love that movie (laughs) yeah i mean we've talked about that in our classic trek movies episode it's it's so light man yeah and i mean jillian taylor is there to save the whales and to protect the whales those two whales um you know more of a a conservationist than like an all-around environmentalist but you know presumably she knows those things are linked and she's awesome Aside from just being a foil to take Kirk down a couple pegs because she's a whale biologist. She calls him like she sees him. Exactly. But they also, I mean, yes, they're messing with the timeline, of course. But the the argument she makes of who in your century knows anything about these animals is one that they take to heart. And they bring her to the future because it's not just about, hey, we need these whales to send this message back. So that Earth doesn't get destroyed and then we don't care about them anymore. Like they're concerned. I would I would like to believe that when Kirk says we want them to repopulate the species, that it's true. And that like that's going to be her main mission now. And you really do want to believe that Kirk as part of Starfleet, uh, Starfleet would be taking that into account that if you are going to take on some kind of undertaking like this you really do need to be prepared you really do need to know what is actually needed to make your goal here feasible and not proverbially let the minks loose in the russian countryside as Mm. it were (laughs) another fun story of environmentalism gone awry anything else on the voyage home not if we want a reasonably timed episode no yeah (laughs) (laughs) i mean i would say that the voyage home is the most clear uh, environmental message in Star Trek, and it's up there with a couple of Voyagers, and I think uh, the most clear example in TNG is Force of Nature. A hundred percent. Totes. This is the episode, the off-maligned episode, about warp fields destroying an area of space. Yep. So the scientists have discovered this. It's hurting their planet. Federation's kind of like, well, we'll continue to study the problem, the woman scientist is saying, no, it's already destroying our planet. I am going to kamikaze mission into a uh, weak area of space to cause a rift to prove this is a problem. And then she does. And they're all going, oh, shit. Yeah, the theme of this episode and some of the ones in Voyager are really like, this is more urgent than you're believing. So therefore, I have to do something drastic to prove to you how urgent this is. Yeah. And I think the most key exchange in this episode is between Rabal, who's the brother of the woman scientist, and LaForge, where Rabal says, I don't think we can look at space travel the same way anymore. We're going to have to change. And LaForge goes, I've been in Starfleet for a long time. 
We depend on warp drive. I just don't know how easy it's going to be to change. And he's like, it won't be easy at all. I marked the same conversation. Yeah. Because it might not be easy, but it's necessary. Yes. I remember on first seeing this episode, just when they first bring up the idea of, yeah, warp speed is screwing up our portion of the galaxy and it's very harmful. I was like, but they warp all the time. This is going to turn out to be some kind of pseudoscience thing. And they're going to be like, ah, don't trust scientists who aren't aligned with Starfleet or something like that. And then they're like, no, this is a very real threat and we need to actively work against it. And I was very pleasantly surprised, like, oh. You guys are taking this more seriously than I thought you would. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think overall, like, the episode, it doesn't have super great pacing. The end conclusion is kind of then, like, forgotten about for the rest of Star Trek time. And the aliens are dressed like they shopped entirely off of a reject racket Chico's. So about that, though, the fact that it's, (laughs) they, they keep saying that it's harming space in that region of space through that specific specifically highly trafficked corridor not that it's harming all of space yeah but it sort of implies there might be other regions yes yeah they're talking about how that effect could spread yeah yeah and uh and i still feel like you know if the discussion is it won't be easy but then it is because we don't ever have to talk about it again right (laughs) oh that was more convenient than we thought also I mean, Voyager comes up with transwarp, so it'll be fine. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I I do think the message is important, though, because when we're looking at climate change and, you know, the amount that it's progressed since this point is truly terrifying since Mm -hmm. when this episode came out. The things that scientists and policymakers are asking individuals and industries to do are not easy, and it is not just enough to be like, hey, I am going to take a reusable cup today. The like relatively easy changes are all important, but there needs to be big changes if we're going to avert catastrophe. And uh, I'm not sure that that message is totally sunk into the world yet. And I mean, there's a really key part there in this episode at the end where they're like, okay, well, we're going to do this, but what about the Ferengi? What about the Romulans? And what about the United States? And I love that part because then we have that moment of, well, we're just going to have to trust that they will realize this is important. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we can like all send this episode to Donald Trump. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> maybe <laughs> don't we can send help. this episode to a lot of people. Just, you know, have it re-air for a couple of months on end. That'd be Just great. because it's cold outside, that doesn't mean climate change isn't real. In <laughs> fact, it means it's extra real. Because it shouldn't be this cold, and there's record temperatures everywhere else on the opposite side of the spectrum. Rage. Rage. Science rage. Your rage. You know what else gives me science rage? What? When, like, what? terraformers terraform over life forms. Ah, oh, that's the worst. <laughs> I hate it. Yeah. You're just trying to hang out and be, like, a sand, sentient glob, and then just Starfleet, man. They just come and yeah. screw it all up. The worst part about this is that they knew something was going on and just kept going. That terraforming team was the worst. We are talking about home soil, of course. Yes. With the light sentient inorgan or what is it inorganic life form yeah. yeah a pretty decent episode for the first season of tng yeah it's not so bad they do look like they're wearing jumpsuits made out of old trench coats though yes <laughs> yeah. yes first season tng <laughs> yeah for the first season it's all right <laughs> but i did also like this because it showed that starfleet when they're terraforming they aren't just looking for no sentient life they're looking for no life which is good to hear from an ecological standpoint and as we have seen on many, well, many Enterprise episodes, don't don't just go down to the planet without, like, doing some kind of survey first. You'll either kill your dog or wind up with an ensign full of rocks. Just don't do it. <laughs> Another ex- just, like, super short exchange that I think is important in TNG is in True Q, where um, Amanda is sort of wowed by how much this planet has let their air get polluted and uh, says to Jordy that it's it's really, uh, you know, she can't believe how bad they let it get. Then now they're spending all of this um, 
I guess not money, but uh, resources to get these filters to fix the problem rather than addressing the root causes of the pollution in the first place. And Dorothy's just like, yep. Yeah, and Star Trek hitting a certain nail on a certain head there. Just like, you know, war, disease, and inequality. Like We are past this in the 24th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also get in Lonely Among Us, Riker saying that we no longer enslave animals for food purposes when they're explaining why they replicated meat at a banquet. Um, although later in another episode, we hear that O'Brien's mom cooked with unreplicated meat. So presumably some people on earth are still allowed to cook actual animals for food and not use replicated meat, but culturally sustainability wise, you have to ask yourself of the cultures that are, you know, make a living from hunting and exporting meat. How would they be affected by the whole replicator thing? Mm-hmm. Well, presumably in the Federation, you're not making a living anymore, right? Yeah, but you gotta wonder. You gotta wonder. <laughs> well, and there's like, I mean, there's complicated discussions now around, um, uh, have been for a long time around uh, hunting and cultural practices yeah. and uh, that like sustainably hunting um, certain animals um, as part of indigenous traditions should be allowed to continue because it wasn't those traditions fault that the animals are at risk and that it's an important to decolonize and redeem those cultures to be, to uh, restore those cultural practices. And it's a complicated issue, but that's a discussion that goes on now. So, you know, I don't think O'Brien's mom is probably in like the oppressed classes of humanity, but never know. She could be hunting her own haggis for all we know. The O'Briens are a hardy lot. It is true that some areas that do allow hunting and provide permits are using it as a form of population control as well. That's yeah. true. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of different aspects to that. Um, but I feel that we are also obligated to quickly mention insurrection yes. because uh, do we the, have the to? setup. I know. <laughs> the, the setup is that they are strip mining the atmosphere of this joyous, life-giving I don't know, fountain of youth planet, which is bad, but that's, that's all I really want to say about insurrection ever. So <laughs> yeah, you can uh, return to our dude buggy adventures episode where we talk about the TNG films for more on insurrection. Have fun listening. We had a questionable amount of fun watching. I mean, but that one is, it is a terrifying mention because it talks about how basically the Federation is willing to relocate an entire indigenous population in order to get a resource from the atmosphere of this planet. Not all the Federation, but at least this one shady admiral and probably some other people. Yeah. Which kind of leads us right into the DS9 episode, Progress. Oh, yes. Yep. Uh, I love this episode. Uh, Refresh my memory. That's the one where Kira uh, starts her beef that she consistently has with old people, right? Yeah. (laughs) Kira versus the old dudes. Take one. So she's sent to this planet to remove um, a farmer and his two, I guess, assistants, workers? Yeah. Cohorts. Because they want to set up something on the moon to get power or something. (laughs) It's it's the Bajoran government. It's not a federation thing. Yeah. yeah. And basically they want to do something better on this this moon than just let this guy farm. So they're going to take his land away and they're like, we'll move you somewhere better. He's like, um, no, this is my land. This is my livelihood. Right. And well, it comes down to at one point, Kira goes back to, to the representative from the Bajoran government and she says, why don't you, instead of doing it this way, which will immediately kill him by, you know, destroying the any kind of atmosphere or whatever on the moon, why don't you do it this other way where people could continue to live on the surface? And the the representative says, well, it would be a year before we get any power from that, before we'd see any return. So it's basically like, well, we could do it without killing you, but it would take too long. Also, we would have to do it to appease just this one crackpot old dude. And his friends. And his mute companions. I mean, they are really making a, a needs of the many outweighs the needs of the few argument. Right. But, you know, but then, like, how do you weigh up expediency versus 
well, you could still get the same results. Especially when you're looking at the Bajoran culture as one that is really trying to economically rebuild and could probably really use a new energy source. Yeah, but he's like, oh, I thought the occupation was over, basically. Like, um, So now, now it's someone else telling me what to do with my land. You just know that he's one of those guys who, if he saw a security camera at the bus depot, would go, oh, Big Brother is watching. And then you'd have to be like, no, that's just to keep people from stealing the buses. Yeah. Shikar deals with this too. This is where Vedic Wind sends Kira to get the soil reclamators from Shikar and is basically like, you were in the resistance with him. You should get these soil reclamators back because we need them urgently in this area. And when she gets there, Shikar points out, uh, we also need them urgently here. And this is actually just a political move by Wynn. And in this case, Kira's had enough of sucking it up and taking away people's land and decides to go fight with Shikar. Fighting the good fight and, you know, doing anything that Wynn doesn't want. Yeah. Any other DS9 you want to talk about? Should we go on to Voyager? Let's voyage forth. I think DS9 had some other things it was dealing with. Yeah, it can only yeah. tackle so many hard topics in a single week. Yeah. There's definitely, like, a, a fair number of mentions that you could, if you were just trying to make the most comprehensive list possible, but not a lot that are focal points of plots. Right. All right, Voyager time. So do we want to start with nuclear power or pollution? Um, I mean, I would say that the the Malons, the pollution storylines about the Malon toxic waste garbage dumpers mm-hmm. are the most clear environmental messages. Oh, yeah. I, I put up there with the, the whale movie. Why don't the space garbage men get their own movie? <laughs> I was thinking both Time and Again and Friendship One. Oh, yeah. yeah. Are, are very, very clear. But also, I mean, so is 30 days about the water planet. That's true. Yeah, there's actually a fair amount in Voyager. Can you remind me about the nuclear power episodes? Because I did not rewatch those, but I, I do vaguely remember Time and Again. Yeah, Time and Again, I think, is like the second or third episode of the entire series. That's the one. With the candy corn. Yeah, with outfit. the candy corn the candy shirts. Corn. The Capricorn corsets. Janeway and Paris, I think, are somehow transported back in time on this planet, and there's a nuclear disaster that is what wipes out the civilization. I say that so cavalierly, but yeah, there's a nuclear disaster. Um, It happens. Right. So it's it's about safe nuclear power, basically, and then um, Friendship One is about the probe that is sent out from Earth to you know leave the solar system and i it's i'm not sure if it's explicitly stated that it is nu- powered by a nuclear reactor but it's certainly implied that way and the civilization that finds it is basically suffering from radiation poisoning because of it and it's destroying it and voyager has been sent to reclaim this probe because starfleet it's back when they're you know in communication with starfleet uh, realizes they're nearby, so they, they're supposed to go pick it up, and they find the civilization and are trying to help them, and their reaction is, well, you did this to us, why should we even trust you? I still think it's pretty great, though, that they're like, hey, we know you've been, you know, marooned in space, away from everyone you love, can you just make this detour on the way back? Right. Probe. We'll add probe but- retrieval specialists to everyone's resume. So it's, it, but that one is not only, like, safe nuclear power, but it's sort of, like, contaminating a civilization even when you don't intend to but you could potentially be harming something else just by sending your message out really yeah and also this idea that like the waste that you put in someone else's backyard is still your waste Mm -hmm. yeah it's still something that you have to maintain responsibility for, which is another thing that we probably should be culturally talking about more. Yep. Yeah, and then 30 Days, we have the water planet where Paris, again, being a key part of these episodes. <laughs> Maybe it has something to do with his accord. You know, Paris's accord. <laughs> wow. That. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. <sighs> anyway, please continue. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's the one where he goes out of his way to save the water planet people. Mm -hmm. And that's the other one where they outright say, like, the situation is more dire than you understand. We're all going to die very soon. And Paris goes and decides that he's going to take the action to, like, blow up something they need so that they'll rebuild it more efficiently. Yeah. Hardcore, right? Echoes of force of nature, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. It, it sort of, I mean, it sort of reminded me of, uh, Homeward, the TNG episode where Worf and his brother are like helping those people escape and this idea of like, if a planet is, environment is degrading. Although in, in the case of 30 days, it is the people's fault. Yes. But like, do, should the, uh, how does the prime directive apply and things like that? Um, I don't know. There's some interesting discussions in there, but it was, uh, I was a little frustrated watching Homeward that they were just like, yo, we totally leave them to die. <laughs> That's how the prime, prime directive, directive works. means not our problem. <laughs> yeah. Far too often. Yes. Our prime directive is home by five. Thank you very much. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, 30 days is a bit of a different situation, but it just reminded me in terms of the, like, uh, you know, guy, you know, interfering where he's been told not to because of the desire to save this people and their planet. And then we have the Malon, the garbage mm-hmm. dumpers of the galaxy, who look pretty gross. Oh, how good do you think you're going to look all in space garbage? Yeah, I think Voyager did its best to try and make these guys seem like badass villains. They're still, like... A little comical, but maybe not as funny as the Ferengi. Yeah, but they're also, I think, and this is soapbox time here, uh, it's pretty good showing of them talking about culturally how important uh, maintaining infrastructure for your culture is and how that is a job that, while it's not great, it's not glamorous, it's still very important. Like, garbage and waste disposal is still very important here in the U.S., and we make fun of them as being, you know, oh, that's for the people who failed to. But no, we we um we have seen cities go completely bananas just because of a single garbage strike, and that's nothing to mm-hmm. joke about. Oh no, it's a super important job. Uh, the Malon, however, their society has decided to like cut every corner possible and not value the workers and not value the infrastructure, and instead just like drag the stuff as far away from them as possible. This bad thing, we need you to long haul it just as far from us as possible. That sounds familiar, too. Right? (laughs) Luckily, Janeway's there. Thank Janeway. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Any other Voyager thoughts? There are some other examples, but I think we should continue to Enterprise. Agreed. I already mentioned the thing about Vulcans as vegetarians, but there is the uh, T'Pol quote, you humans claim to be enlightened, yet you still consume the flesh of animals. Also, probably by the 24th century, we could have also figured out if we had replicated meat, we could have also figured out better treatments for anemia. Yeah, Mm. you would hope so, really. Hey, if a pill can stop kidney failure. Yes. I want to regrow a kidney. And I want to regrow my crappy blood. Thank you very much. <laughs> here, here. Now give me a vegan steak. That'll be a thing, right? So somebody, when I was looking for examples of environmentalism in Star Trek, somebody brought up hatchery as a example of animal rights. That is a little, eh, to me, because they are, they're not animals, right? They're another sentient species that that the Enterprise crew is dealing with. I can't remember this episode. Are you able to refresh this my This is um, during the whole Zindi arc when they literally find a hatchery for, for I think it might be the reptilians for, for one oh. of the Zindi species. And there is a whole argument about whether or not to destroy the eggs. And a complete and total missed potential for an entire episode based around little baby lizard aliens. (laughs) They did that in Voyager. But yeah, I mean, that's the same as saying you found your enemy's babies. Can you kill them? Right. That's not really directly. Doesn't really matter that they're reptilians. Not much of a question. So much as a, oh, God. I think the big one from Enterprise is the Augment storyline, at least for me. All yeah. about genetic modification and whether it's ethical, whether, I don't know, so many things. 
Well, I mean, like the consent of the subject is an issue in some of those episodes that people don't know what's being done to them. This idea that there's like this grand design, but no one has really thought through the consequences, especially when you look at the Klingon side of things, that there's a failure in quite a few of these episodes to consider, you know, taking precautionary principle into account that, that if you you know, if the possible dangers are pretty great and you don't know what they are, that like maybe not going ahead is a better <laughs> idea. Caution could be the way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, you know, trying to find out more about what the uh, potential dangers are before proceeding. And also this like the spinoff effects on others. So um, I think you see that in the augment storyline that which is you know, something that comes up in discussions of genetically modified organisms. I I will say, like, I think a lot of the discussion, there is like, there's some overblown rhetoric in our world. Um, But there are some legitimate fears. How far is too far, Jera? <laughs> but there's some um, there, there are some legitimate questions that are raised about, okay, well, if we, you know, starts uh, allowing companies to sterilize plants, then, you know, taking away the reproductive capacity of plants takes away a fundamental thing and you're forcing like farmers to buy every year. And what happens if the uh, non-sterilized genetically modified organisms like blow over into the next field? Um, it's like this is actually there have been lawsuits about this, about like GMO seeds blowing into neighboring fields right. and contaminating other people's organic crops. So the the spinoff effects of modifying genes and basically like wanting to play God and thinking we're doing something great, but you're actually, there's all these unintended effects on everything around you that you didn't anticipate. Can I just really quickly do a very, very brief Sue Science Corner and remind yeah, everyone that non-GMO is not a thing. Literally everything has been genetically modified since like, to yeah, some degree. even before yeah. Gregor Mendel went and like did his whole P experiment. That's P-E-A. <laughs> for different colors. Like we have bred be before we knew what genes were, we bred our agriculture, our our fruits and our vegetables to be what we desired. Like yeah, for go sure. look up what fruits used to look like and what they look like now. The watermelon is especially interesting, but that is genetic modification. So the idea of like I'm gonna search out non GMO food, just stop. There's nothing no, wrong sure. with eating GMOs. For okay. sure, but it it also doesn't mean that like breeding is benign. Like, um, well, yes, that we need to consider the ramifications of any types of um, interference and, or like or non interference in natural uh, or reproduction. Um, because I mean, if you look at like breeding of dogs or like pure breeding, then mm -hmm. like pure breeding has caused a lot of negative effects people didn't realize over generations. So. Like, absolutely, you're totally right. And that's what I mean when I'm saying, like, you know, do your research, look look things up, don't, you know, get panicked. Well, one question that you got to ask when you're talking about the augments and just letting these angry, super-powered teenagers loose in the world is, does that make them count as an invasive species? Eh? Eh? It kind of rings of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Possibly. <laughs> or the X-Men. Or they're the X-Men. <laughs> Or both. And totally when you said the spin-off <laughs> issue of this, I was like, oh god, they weren't going to make a spin-off on the Augments, were they? <laughs> they were the evil X-Men. Ah, uh, we have those! <laughs> They're called the X-Men. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> Alright, so... Magneto was right! Do we have anything else to bring up for Enterprise? Nope. I'm going to say that's a no. There's even a few things to mention from Discovery. Ooh. If you're not watching Discovery, you might want to just maybe skip the rest of the episode. FYI, possible spoilers. Um, but <laughs> I remember when I was watching, it really struck me. It's I think it's at the beginning of um, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, where yeah. they, they find the Gorgamander. And right away, one of the lines is like, well, under environmental protection law, we have to save it and transport it to another space where it can be safe so like there are environmental protections for space whales which i think is pretty cool that was pretty cool Lorca's like screw that <laughs> we're at war and then 
everyone's like, no, I think we should really save the space whale. And he's like, I guess. He loves dissecting animals. That's a form of love. Go save your space whale. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just imagining him getting the Audubon calendar every year now in the mail. Sorry, Jerry, did you have more on that? (laughs) I know that's pretty much all I was going to say. I was going to say it's cool that everyone convinces him they should save the space whale, even though that then becomes a minor point to the fact that mud is hiding inside it. Right. Well, yes. also, we can't forget, save the space tardigrades. Don't exploit them. Yes. The the tardigrade storyline is definitely more of the, I guess, animal rights issue. Yeah, most definitely. Yes. The second that thing showed up and... Tough to watch. Yeah. 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 We also have the, the Pavins in the last episode that they think... They, they don't think there is any life there. And then they, they find out that there is in this strange way. And this mission they have becomes a first contact situation and everything changes because of that protocol. Yeah. It's interesting. I think the, I mean, the tardigrade thing is particularly, um, it's the one that's explored in the most depth. This idea of, you know, it's become okay to experiment on this unique life form. Um, even though it's causing it pain mm-hmm. uh, because of war. It really forces you to question that whole needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few or the one tardigrade. Well, especially because it can't communicate. It can't consent yeah. to that. Why are there no betazoids on board, guys? <laughs> yeah, it's one thing when Spock volunteers to go into the warp core. It's another yeah. when an animal who can't say no is forced into a situation where it's being harmed. Yeah. So when they free it, I was very happy. Mm-hmm. It was so pretty. I called it horsey yeah. boo. <laughs> well, I mean, Andy called it fluffy yeah. in her reviews, right? Yes. Yes. I just want to hug that giant water bear. Yeah. Well, I think we've done our due diligence with talking about environmentalism in that I'm kind of bummed out now. Well... <laughs> Star Trek also gives us hope for the future. That's right. I love hope. <laughs> it's doing its job and making it us is. look at ourselves and say, what are we doing? Help us. Or what can we be doing better? <laughs> Which all of us have things we could do better. So yes. it's important. They're holding up that mirror to humanity and we're just taking a long, hard look at it. All right. Any other final thoughts? When man was killing these creatures, he was destroying his own future. I'm just thinking about... The Last Buffalo. And George and Gracie. Yes, them too. But mostly The Last Buffalo. I'm still amazed by Kirk's birth control speech. Yeah, it holds up. Yeah. I just... 1968, man. It should just only ever be watched as a clip of that one scene. Yeah. 1968. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, let us close out the episode then sue where could people find you elsewhere on the internet you can find me on twitter at spaltor that's s-p-a-l-t-o-r and grace you can find me on twitter at bonecrusher jink and also hugging water bears and i'm jara and you can find me on twitter at jara penguin that's j-a-r-r-a-h penguin an animal that is highly endangered due to climate change oh and (laughs) if you want to contact our show we always like to hear from you. Uh, you can email us at crew at womenatwarp.com. You can visit our website, womenatwarp.com, and comment, read and comment on our blog. You can go on our Facebook or our Twitter at Women at Warp. Or like we said earlier, you can leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Did I forget anything? Magneto was right. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you in two weeks. Rejection from society is what created the X-Men. Thank you.